This is Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine, and I'm John Wiener. Now it's time to talk with Patrick Leahy. Of course, he is the senior senator from Vermont and the longest serving member of the Senate. After almost 50 years there, he's announced he will not run for a ninth term this fall. He's just written a memoir, The Road Taken. We reached him today in Washington, D.C. It's an honor and a pleasure to say, Senator Patrick Leahy, welcome to the program. Well, thank you. This is a great program, and I appreciate the opportunity to be on it. Well, I learned from your memoir that in your first campaign for the Senate in 1974, both Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden were part of the story. Tell us about that. Bernie ran, ran as a Liberty Union Party, as, as a socialist and a third party candidate. Now, remember, Vermont was the only state in the union that never elected a, a Democrat to the Senate and certainly never looked at any senator as young as, as I. And so um, I had asked him why he was, why he was uh, running, because he was taking mostly votes for me as a candidate on the left, and, and we got along fine. And he said, well, you can't win anyway. So I, <laughs> I get my name known, and, and he got 5% of the vote. And I, I won by about one or two percent of the vote. And uh, Joe, Joe Biden was sent by the Democratic Party to come up and just speak at a Democratic gathering. Well, the Democratic gathering, we probably had a dozen people at it. <laughs> uh, he was going on from there to another state. And we got along fine because we were the two youngest people there. And uh, in fact, the press didn't even mention that I was there. They mentioned that the youngest senator and uh, Joe Biden was there. And over the years, we've always uh, teased about that. But it was it was nice to meet him. And they uh, is very open, very friendly, talked with everybody, remembered everybody's name. And then when I got elected, I came in, we were the two youngest members of the U.S. Senate. We were... We were the kids, and I think that bonded, bonded us more than anything else. And how different was Bernie in 1974? Was he giving the same stump speech he gives today, income inequality, oh, yeah. corporate Listen, power? I, I, I told him on the campaign trail, if he got laryngitis or anything, I'd give his speech for him because <laughs> I'd memorize it. Yeah, it's basically the same speech, and I'll give him credit for that. He's, he's always stayed... Uh, consistent. Uh, and the I think people in Vermont uh, grown to appreciate him giving the speeches. And uh, so we, we get along fine. Well, today we think of Vermont, of course, as the land of you and Bernie, of Ben and Jerry, deep blue. It's the state where Joe Biden got the biggest margin of any state, 66%. But of course, as you say, when you started out in Vermont politics in the 70s, it was not a democratic state. No. Uh, how and why did Vermont change from red to blue? Well, I think a lot of us can take some credit spending time exposing people to different, different viewpoints. We've also had uh, new people moving in, uh, younger people who want to listen to other ideas and 
also, I think, Vermont has sort of taken things for, for granted that they'd be Republican. I remember uh, we had our last election, we elected a, a Republican for governor, a Democrat for lieutenant governor. <laughs> and so there's still tickets played. In fact, since uh, uh, 1960, when Phil Hoff came the first Democrat in modern times to win as governor, we got a Democratic governor, next one a Republican, next one Democrat, next one Republican. It's gone literally back and forth uh, each time. And but I remember when I was a young student at, a, at St. Michael's College at that time, all male, uh, predominantly Catholic, and I'm out not old enough to vote, but uh, campaigning for John Kennedy. Hmm. And people are telling me, well, we don't like Nixon, but you can't expect us to vote for a Catholic <laughs> uh, for president. Uh, I thought that uh, a memory I had when 14 years later I ran for the U.S. Senate. But it was, <laughs> I think it was the John Kennedy, uh, Phil Hoff, and others started a change. And then it's, it's been individuals. Now we vote more the individual than the party. Well, today we think of the Senate as one of our biggest uh, political problems. It's an undemocratic body where small states are wildly overrepresented, states like Wyoming and Vermont. Vermont. It's a body with even more uh, undemocratic rules. Of course, the filibuster that has made it almost impossible to pass legislation favored by big majorities of Americans. Uh, is this the way you see the Senate today? Well, I I wanted to think of the Senate as being the conscience of the nation. And at times it has been. Obviously it wasn't in the early years of segregation, but with the push of Lyndon Johnson and some key Republicans, that changed. Uh, when I came there, Republicans and Democrats worked together. And I'll give you one example. And I talked to both of these senators as a young senator and listened to them. When the Republican leader of the Senate and Barry Goldwater, who was Mr. Conservative, went down to the uh, White House to tell Richard Nixon he had to leave. Now, that was Hugh Scott, also Mr. Republican. Yeah. And I asked them what they thought about it. And they said, we took no joy in that. None whatsoever. But we thought for the sake of the country and for the integrity of the Senate, we had to do it. And the fact that we were doing it, uh, the president would have to listen far more than if it came from the Democratic side. And I, I've never forgotten that. And I, then I saw people working things out together, both parties, Bob Dole and George Mitchell would meet two or three times a day as Republican Democratic leader. Uh, certainly disagreed on issues, but said, let's, let's bring it to a vote. Uh, not a filibuster, but a vote. We'll have a debate, may go on for two or three days, and then we'll vote. That's the way the Senate should be. In fact, one of the reasons I wrote my book, uh, The Road Taken, is to show the arc of what the Senate was when I came there. Obviously, as an idealistic 34-year-old former prosecutor. But to see how well it works when it works well, 
and how badly and polarized it's become. And then the uh, shocking aspect of January 6th, and a realization that there are large segments of the U.S. population that don't get their news from factual sources. Uh, they get made-up news on, uh, on the Internet or elsewhere or by partisan groups and how politicized we've come and the fact that people will find a source of news that appeals to them, not having read any history, not understanding it. During the insurrection and the mobs going through the Capitol, they were claiming, well, the Constitution is invited in there. I was thinking, have you ever read the Constitution? <laughs> if you have, find me the place. Find me the place in the Constitution that says a mob bent on destruction, putting up a noose to hang the vice president, Mike Pence. Show me in the Constitution where that's encouraged. I want to get back to January 6th in a minute, but a few things before that. You were on the Judiciary Committee for a long time. 1991, Joe Biden was chair of the Judiciary Committee. You were a member. Clarence Thomas was nominated. And Anita Hill testified against him. You quizzed both Anita Hill and Clarence Thomas very carefully about their testimony. It's still on C-SPAN, very easy to find. I wonder, thinking about those hearings today, whether you think they were handled right. Well, I felt that I handled it right because I asked them both questions. And then I stated publicly that I believed Anita Hill. And I did not believe Clarence Thomas. And that was a major reason why I voted against him. It wasn't uh, philosophical reasons, but I felt he had not told the truth. I felt she had. And everybody should have been able to make up their own, own mind on that. Turned into histrionics and uh, Federalist Society pushing for Clarence Thomas and other right-wing groups. I, I think it was very bad. I, I think um, people should have listened to that. I wish there had been more witnesses, or at least one more witness would back what uh, Anita Hill was saying. But I made it very clear that I believed her. And when did you first become aware of Donald Trump? When did you first realize he could become president? Well, I'd seen him at the correspondence dinner and things like that. I'd heard a lot about him and seemed to be kind of a make-believe world. But as I watch him just piling on one misstatement after another and people accepting it, I thought, you know, if he would make some misstatement, the press seemed to feel, well, we, we have to say that at such, such a time, Hillary Clinton didn't have her facts right. Well, she may, that may have been once. They would have to balance that every time against his thousand uh, yeah. misstatements of fact. And I, I really worried about that. And I saw Hillary Clinton, somebody that those of us who served her in the Senate knew her before as first lady, knew that in private, and you know, she not only an extraordinarily intelligent person, very humorous, very down to earth, and it's almost like she was being controlled in uh, what she said. And I felt he was going to might win. Now, I've had interesting encounters with him, 
one especially the Ronald Reagan and Tip O'Neill started a program that every St. Patrick's Day they'd have a luncheon for Republicans and Democrats, usually with an Irish name, and the president would come. And it actually made a lot of sense. People could just forget party and go along. Well, I was standing there with Enda Kenny, who was at that time the Prime Minister of Ireland. Donald Trump comes in and he says, oh, I see you're here with my good friend, Pat. Well, we call him Patrick uh, today. Great senator, wonderful man. He's me in the back. I'm kind of looking at him like, I think we'd met maybe once. And, uh, oh, we just, you know, my neighbor from Vermont, wonderful, wonderful leader in the Senate, and walks off. Prime Minister is watching, turns to me, says, well, now, Pat, he is supposed he has any idea who you are. And I said, no, he doesn't. (laughs) Now it's time for your Minnesota moment. That's news from my hometown of St. Paul that you won't get from Sean Hannity. In 2017, Al Franken, the senator from Minnesota, one of the leading liberals of the Senate, was pressured to resign after a conservative talk radio host accused him of having forced an unwanted kiss on her 10 years earlier. And then other women joined in with complaints of unwanted hugs. Uh, The campaign to force him out was led by a New York Democrat, Kirsten Gillibrand, who was planning to run for president. In retrospect, what do you think about the campaign to pressure Al Franken to resign? Well, a number of people had signed a letter raising questions. I was probably the last one to to sign. I mean, uh, Bernie Sanders and others were urging us to sign it. And after about a day or so, I said, no, take my name back off. Hmm. I called out and said, uh, no, that was a mistake. The matter is before the Senate Ethics Committee. You should have had a hearing. You have both Republicans and Democrats on the Ethics Committee. Let them make the decision. He said he appreciated that. He would keep my confidence. I said, no, no, I'm going to send you a letter saying there was a mistake to sign it. It should have been heard by the Ethics Committee. And you have my permission to released letters saying I made a mistake. And and he did. You know, we've been friends. He's one of the brightest people I, I know served in, in the Senate. He was on the Judiciary Committee, although not a lawyer, but he would come better prepared than many of the lawyers on the Judiciary Committee. I don't know what the Ethics Committee, what they would have decided, but he did not have due process and he should have. Okay, January 6th, really the dramatic culmination of your uh, memoir, The Road Taken. You report that when you and the rest of the senators had taken refuge in a secure, undisclosed location, the Senate prepared to convene in a special session in that bunker. Tell us about that. Well, you know, under the under the rules of the Senate, we can vote to meet anywhere. I think about the only time we haven't met in the Capitol was uh, after 9-11, we went to New York and met in the building where the first Congress had met just to show support from Republicans and Democrats to New York and against the the terrorists. So technically, we could do it. I stood up and I said, no, I got really heated. Uh, I said, I'm the dean of the Senate. I've been here the longest. No, I don't want to do that. It may take them three or four or five or six hours 
to reopen the Senate chamber by the time the bomb-sniffing dogs came through and everything. But let's wait. Let's wait. We're here with six-year terms. Let's wait and then go back where the American public can see us. We owe it to the American public to see us, whether we agree with what happened or not. And I got a standing ovation from Republicans and Democrats. People agreed afterward. They said, of course, there's a thing to do. We owe it to the American people to see us. Patrick Leahy's new memoir is titled The Road Taken. Senator, thank you for fighting the good fight in the Senate for almost 50 years. And thanks for talking with us today. Thank you. And I look forward to being back home in Vermont very, very soon. You've been listening to Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine. You can hear more interviews like this one at thenation.com, and you can subscribe to Start Making Sense at iTunes Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.